You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. With me, just just for a moment, just underwear, just, underwear, just one underwear. brief moment, Miss Piggy, Miss. Hmm. Miss Piggy, you're a very different looking woman. I'm so tired of the same type. Those tall, thin creatures with the long legs, the the aquiline noses, the teeth like pearls, soft skin. Yeah. Well, I can see why that might make you sick to your stomach. <laughs> please now. Please, please, no, please, no, please, please. Don't put a door between us. Hello and welcome to the sequel cast. The sequel cast is a show that talks about movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt. We're in the middle of talking about the Muppets. This time we're talking about the second live action theatrical feature film, The Great Muppet Caper, released in 1981. The uh, feature film theatrical debut of Jim Henson, produced by David Laser and Frank Oz, Bruce Sharman, Martin Starger, written by Tom Patchett, Jay Tarzes, Jerry Joel, and Jack Rose, featuring the voice and Muppeteering talents of Jim Henson, Frank Oz, David Gwaltz, and Jerry Nelson. Music by Joe Raposo. Cinematography by Oswald Morris. Released by Universal Pictures. Running time 94 minutes. Made a profit in the box office. Uh, check out our website, sequelcast.com. Our theme song is done by Mark with a C. Check them out at markwithac.com. And if you go to stitcher.com slash sequelcast, sign up for the app. You can listen to Sequelcast streaming through Stitcher. Follow us on Stitcher. Uh, Okay, this is yeah. Matt. Not great, talking great, like... great to set that up, Matt. I'll tell you what. Uh, we got a great episode here coming up for you, and I'm glad we're going to do the entire episode talking like a pair of yammering DJs. I was trying to do a lame Phil Hartman impression. It doesn't sound like Phil Hartman at all. It sounds I'll tell you what, like Phil a... Hartman's never sounded like that. I think also the voice you were trying to do was Don Pardo. Don Pardo's a pretty crazy yes. guy. Woo, 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 boing. That's just kind of the sound effects you'll hear on WKPL. That's the official radio of SequelCast. Welcome to Saturday Night Live, starring John Lovitz. All right, I think you've successfully gotten everyone to turn off the podcast, so I think we're done for the day. Right, so if you've listened to so far, uh, if you didn't get that, you know, sequel cast is a podcast, look at movies one podcast at a time. I'm not going to repeat myself. We're talking about the great Muppet caper in our <laughs> midst of looking at the Muppet stuff. With me, of course, is Thrasher. Hello. Check us at SequelCast.com or go to Facebook.com slash SequelCast to join in on the conversations. Or if you go to iTunes, look up SequelCast, leave us a review. Because we need more than the five we uh, currently have. Right. I, right off the bat, i got to say, caper is not a word that is used nearly enough today. Uh, caper reminds me of a story. Do you mind if I go into it before go we right talk about this film? So shortly after I moved to Portland, Oregon, uh, uh, obviously before I was married, I, w- I was dating a, um, someone, and she had a huge DVD collection, like 10 bookshelves worth. That's and not where I thought you were going. No, no, it's not. Huge DVD collection, no irony there. Uh, I, she was wanting help organizing it. I'm like, well, what are you organizing this? This isn't all alphabetical order. And she's like, no, it's by genre. Okay, well, what's this pile of films over here? It's Tango and Cash and shit like that. Oh, that's the caper section. Ah! Is what she said. I'm like, caper? What does that fucking mean? Who says caper? So, along those lines, the great Muppet caper. And uh, out of what some fans might call the original trilogy of the Muppet films, (laughs) the great Muppet caper breaks format the most, I think. It's trying to tell a story the whole way through. 
it's more conserved with narrative than uh, the other films. It's less of a musical in some ways. What do you think about that, Thrasher, compared to uh, the Muppet movie, which we covered last week, and the Muppet Takes Manhattan? Yeah, I, I gotta say, the, the Grey Muppet Caper, they're, they're doing a parody of a particular kind of film, but scene to scene, they change what kind of film they're parodying. Sometimes they're doing a parody of a fish-out-of-water comedy. Sometimes they're doing a parody of a heist film. Other times, they're, it's a parody of romantic comedies. And yet, other times, it's a, a parody of film noir or, or classic you know, Hollywood films. It's... I. I love this this movie more than anything else the Muppets have ever done is a love letter to the cinema. You know, it's worth mentioning that this was released in uh, 81. Jim Henson uh, did not die until 1990. Well, Waiting to bring it down in the first five minutes, almost exactly. It's a sequel cast tradition when we talk about people that have died. No, uh, but with The Great Muppet Caper, you know, this is the only Muppet film fully, uh, completely directed by Jim Henson himself. A lot of the later uh, feature film efforts Jim Henson would co-direct with Frank Oz. Uh, Frank Oz being the voice of Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear and that sort of stuff. And Frank Oz is, you know, a film director uh, to this day and, you know, did the voice of Yoda, for Christ's sake, all that stuff. So, I mean, that being said, this is sort of Jim Henson directing it by himself, and although he directed a lot of the TV shows and TV specials that we've uh, mentioned before and will mention in the future... This is sort of like, you know, you can kind of think of it as The Muppets at its purest through Jim Henson, as him being the director. It has a lot more flashy sequences with a lot of Muppets moving around on screen. Uh, Although um, The Muppet Movie had all the Muppets on bicycles, this has a big Bubsy Berkeley-style dance number. No, no, this is also the the one that has the, I believe, that has The Muppets on bicycles. God damn it, Really? Yeah, when we're, we get we get to see Kermit on a bicycle in the Muppet movie, but in the Great Muppet Caper, we get to see a whole slew of Muppets in Hyde Park. I'm sorry, I, I, I was getting that confused. I've seen these back to back with each other, so I get a bit muddled in my old Play, age. Of playing 30, your Game Boy. Playing my Game Boy. Well, playing my, uh, my, dog. my five pound Game Boy. Playing my broken Tetris cartridge while playing catch with Starbuck, the toy Labradoodle, the dog that should not exist. Because it's a freak of nature, toy poodle and Labrador. It doesn't make sense. But I tell you what, it is a hot video. Oh yeah, sure. Starbucks the Labradoodle Triple X coming soon. No, that's terrible. It's all about how you make a Starbucks the Labradoodle. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> Great Muppet Caper. Man. This is going to be a long show. Uh, so this was filmed in England. The film is released shortly after the fifth and final season of the Muppet Show. And um, unlike some of the early Muppet movies, this one takes some chances. It does some of the fourth wall stuff. It's trying to do more of a story. I think it's a harder film to enjoy than the Muppet movie. It's less cameos or less well-known cameos. Uh, What do you think? I disagree more so than any of the other films. I see this. I see the great Muppet caper as being pure entertainment for a genre savvy uh, viewer. In in a lot of ways, I, f- I find it the most entertaining of, of the original Muppet films. Really? Yeah. Really? And no, I, I'm totally serious. If if you understand the conventions of several different kinds of movies, then this film is just nothing but gag after gag after gag uh, about those movies. And also, it's making fun of a genre of movies that was, like, classic, older kind of movies at the time, too, though, wasn't it? What do you say? Well, yeah, I mean, we have we have Fozzie and Kermit. Well, this, this is the thing I love. This is the conceit of the movie. This is not a movie about the Muppets. This is a movie the Muppets made. So Fozzie and Kermit are, are they're not Fozzie and Kermit. They're Fozzie and Kermit playing two twin brother reporters. <laughs> And I right. love that. I love that gag, especially that really bizarre part where the newspaper they work for, the the, the lead editor used to be a friend of their father's, and he has a photo of him with like this half Kermit, half Fozzie Muppet. It is one of the most disturbing things you will ever see. Right, Thrasher, you <laughs> and I so were talking about that before the show, and uh, right, I think it's 
Yeah, I don't know. It's a weird gag. It's one of the things people remember from this movie, like that and Charles Grodin, who does a great job in a supporting part as a, a human, obviously, in the film. With uh, the part he was born to play. And, uh, yes, sure. Um, and The Great Muppet Caper, I guess we should start talking about when did, when did uh, you first see this, Thrasher? I first saw this, I think, when I was... Yeah, it had to be six. We... We had it on Betamax. Your family had a Betamax player? Yes. We a Sony, Sony Betamax. Yeah, Sony Betamax. Right, okay. I'm just saying. Like, I lived overseas at the time, and my grandparents, as a gift, got us a VHS, and they happened to have chosen the right format uh, as a, out of a stroke of luck. But as you can remember, what do you remember about Betamax compared to to videotape did you recognize it looking at that much better at the time because it had uh, a better resolution smaller smaller uh cassettes yeah and a a, a crisper uh video transfer hmm. I, I oddly enough even as a child i did notice the difference you did get generally speaking you got a crisper video tra- if you were recording off television mind you you typically got a crisper transfer on the betamax than on the vhs I do want to say, I mean, like, my family, my dad in particular, who at the time was obviously in charge of electronics at the house, I was, like, in first or second grade when these films came out, or even, oh, no, even younger than that, technically, whatever. Anyway, my dad, he would always hook up videotape, Nintendo, whatever, to the TV using the shittiest cable possible, the coaxial. Oh, yeah. The big, thick cable. Now, did your family have the Betamax hooked up with a coaxial, or did they have it with the RCA the yellow for video and red and white for audio. I actually don't remember. This is such a dumb point to talk about. I think it might have been co. It might have been the coaxial cable, it but I'm actually been. not entirely sure. Okay, but anyway, your family owned this movie at a time when movies, uh, for the most part, were expensive to own, right? Well, n- well, we taped it off of cable. Oh, okay. Hmm. So, not so expensive to own if you're taping off a of cable. Uh, so yeah. it had commercials and stuff, right? No, uh, no, no. It was from from uh, probably from HBO. HBO, I see. HBO that you uh, got from the cable guy from slipping him a fiver. Well, I I don't know what my parents' business transactions were with the cable company at the time. All I know is that the tape we had was recorded off of probably HBO. Right. Uh, as for me, when I first saw Great Muppet Caper. I was in high school at the time working for Blockbuster Video. It was kind of like when I discovered Muppet Movie for the first time. I didn't watch these older Muppet movies when I was a kid for whatever reason. And um, as a high school student, I had a harder time getting into it than I do now as uh, someone in their early 30s. So, um, but right, I think you're right, Thrasher. The uh, the tone shifting from teen from scene to scene as far as what it's making fun of and stuff uh it can make it or, or for me i think it's a bit of a challenge i know you said it's it's your favorite out of the first original muppet trilogy the ot as they might say and um but it in some ways it also reflects the structure of the original muppets film where the muppets find an excuse to get together they travel someplace and they have to stay in an apartment or a house or a hotel together What do you think of that theory? Uh, that, that could almost be any movie, because any movie is about a <laughs> protagonist or protagonists in a place trying to accomplish a thing. I'm, I'm not sure that's wholly unique to the Muppets. I'm just thinking a Muppet movie, you have them building the house, making the band, and uh, in this one, they're in the, in the hotel, the Happiness Hotel... And then Muppets take Manhattan. They're staying in the uh, the storage lockers at a oh, subway yeah. station. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is a theme or a structure they're hearkening back to. I, I think they just like. I think Jim Henson just likes to mine comedy from people's living conditions, whatever that living condition might be. So as we have the Wikipedia page pulled up, the greatest source of research ever. I'm looking from at memory. Oh, very good. Uh, looking at the cameo guest stars, what are some that what are some that jump out at you? You know, there's less cameos in this certainly than in the Muppet movie. Well, I love I love the cameo with John Cleese and Joan Sanderson. 
Hmm. It just because it's just like there's this there's this great bit with like Miss Piggy trying to sneak into their foyer while they're having a nice elegant meal. And they're just having this very pleasant, very genteel conversation where they're trying to straighten out whether their kids moved away from home, their pets were dead and their servants were fired, or whether their children were dead and the servants ran away and the pets were fired, or the pets were dead. Like, it just, it keeps going around. They're just so pleasant about it. I think this is the first time I ever really noticed John Cleese as an actor. The humor, uh, and the film was filmed in England, and, and then it takes place in England, it's worth mentioning, is, and that scene is very, very subtle, it's very dry, it's something new that might be out of place in Faulty Towers. Well, that's the only thing I'm missing, it really, it uh, really should have been uh, Connie Booth, probably, <laughs> that he was eating with. <laughs> but then Although that, had... do you think that scene was improvised? It, it has the, it, it feels like it's improvised to me. Probably a bit. I mean, I recall many years later uh, reading an interview about John Cleese talking about what it was like with the Muppets, and he's like, after a certain point, you forget that they're Muppets, and he found himself giving Kermit the Frog a pat on the head in spite of himself, even though, you know, Jim Henson and Frank Oz and all the other Muppet performers were, you know, either underneath the floor or crammed under the table, manipulating these characters and doing the voice at the same time. That even working with them on the set, they're able to suspend their disbelief. That's something that come across with any of the interviews with any of the main actors from these films. And, um, I mean, also, you know, John Cleese was on an episode of The Muppet Show, it's worth mentioning. Oh, yes. Doing a, uh, a, a salsa number, am I... Uh, right? yeah, at the, at the end, he, he does do a, uh, salsa number surrounded by monsters. <laughs> Uh, but no, I love this movie. One of the other things I like about this movie is it has a, a hell of a lot of energy, and it starts giving you that energy right off the bat with that opening musical number, with that opening number, "Hey, a movie," where it's all like, I mean, <laughs> this is a movie about movies telling a story about movies, and that song just nails it. <laughs> and we can't believe they did it, starring everybody and me, you know. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of the music, you know, the music in this one was done by Joe Raposo, uh, a different, you know, uh, team of people doing the music than in the Muppet movie. Uh, so, with that in mind, what do you think of the music in this compared to the music in the Muppet movie? I mean, I think uh, I... Go on. The thing, the thing that I notice in this movie, uh, more so than the other, than the other movies in... It, it feels like every song in The Great Muppet Caper is trying to be the show-stopping number. Well, it goes to say that Joe Raposo, and, and this isn't a slight, I'm just saying as a fact, he did music on Sesame Street, mm-hmm. which is very different from the different from the background of uh, Paul Williams and, um, oh, what was the other composer in the first one? Crap. Uh, I can't think of it, whatever. Best Friend. Best Friend, yes. Paul Williams and Best Friend. Exactly. Um, but you can tell it sounds a bit more Sesame Streety, but you're right. Everything is trying to be a show-stopping number with a, a chorus that builds and builds and builds and builds, and it becomes a bit exhausting. And uh, the content of the lyrics isn't trying to be as deep or profound as what was in the Muppet movie. It may not be profound, but it, it is very catchy, and it is... Yeah. Right. No. It's it's all technically very sound. It's it's uh, none of it's no there's no lazy music in this movie. It's not bad. It's just different. The style is different. The, the the lyrical content is different. You might even say it's more kitty compared to what's in the first film. But even then, you know, you have the main plot about a diamond heist. Um, uh, that was a go-to plot in the '80s uh, until it was replaced with the uh, cocaine cocaine plot. Yeah. <laughs> With cocaine and three men and a baby, or a kindergarten cop, or what have you, right? <laughs> or, or illegal weapons testing in the Beethoven movie, right? And uh, got Beethoven on the sequel cast—that'd be frightening, huh? Because what yes, Charles Grodin, be, uh, who was in Great Muppet Capers in one and two, and then in Direct to Video three and four, it was Judge Reinhold from the Beverly Hills Cop films, and then they changed it to someone else, I think, for five. God. Well, the only dog I want to talk about is Rolf the dog. Right. Uh, you get a bit of the game getting back together in this one, even though they're Muppets playing characters in a movie, kind of. 
But there's not as much of that as in the original Muppet movie where a lot of, you know, the first half of the film is everyone getting together. That stuff is set up a lot um, a lot quicker in this one. Yeah, it's a m- much faster paced. Uh, one thing that threw me off, my wife Ivana was especially disturbed by this. You get a scene where Miss Piggy is on a motorcycle, and for the wide shots, they used a human with these, like, a weird disproportionate Miss Piggy uh, mask on top. Yeah, it is kind of twisted. <laughs> and it just looks like something out of the Wicker Man. I don't know. It looks disturbing. Strange. Yeah, you, you, you can tell it's a little person in a Miss Piggy suit, just the way she, the way she moves. And yet, you know, movies are all about uh, artifice, so if anything, that just makes the movie more like itself. I don't think if they would have done it as stop motion or miniature, it would have looked better necessarily. Like, I think that might have been the only way they could have done that special effect at the time. Well, certainly, you know, this is long before CGI uh, was at all common, or at all, at all. Right. That's, uh... And yet, like, I was surprised in this character, you had Rizzo the Rat. Was that a character on The Muppet Show, or...? Ah, uh, he the, the the rats showed up on the Muppet Show, but I don't remember if Rizzo was ever actually named on the Muppet Show. And they become more popular in the movies as they go on. Uh, become well, kind of more main characters. The Rizzo in right. particular, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so in this film, you know, even though it's about the, the the diamond heist and finding Lady Holiday's necklace, that plot doesn't come off until pretty late in the film. It still has a bit of the shaggy dog, uh, episodic, sketch comedy mentality of the Muppet movie. I'd say I'd say that's pretty accurate. I mean, the before any of the diamond stuff really well, because the whole reason they go to Britain is to investigate these mysterious diamond heists. But that kind of goes away once you have the mistaken identity where Kermit thinks Miss Piggy is Lady Holiday. Uh, and then from that point, it's, it's a romantic comedy between the two of them. Yeah, and the way that some of the dialogue is done with all the fast paced, it could be something out of the Thin Man series of movies from the 30s. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're certainly touching on, uh, on so much of film history that younger viewers, even modern viewers uh, such as myself, might not get. Say, do you guys do yourself a favor? Read The Thin Man by Dashiell Hammett. That is an amazing book. Reportedly, Johnny Depp has been trying to remake that uh, as a film, although remake it's been running. Or remake uh, it. Johnny Depp's a really talented actor. It's currently running into budget issues, from what I understand. I, I keep up on some film news pretty uh, regularly uh, with such websites as like Hitfix with Drew McWinney's uh, column. But right, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. I've never even seen any of the original Thin Man movies, so I don't feel like I can talk about it. But. What? How can that have budget issues? Johnny Depp gets a lot of money. The director, if he's directing Johnny Depp, gets a lot of money. Romantic lead gets a lot of money, not as much as Johnny Depp. Except there is no romance in that in the book. Well, I don't know. They, well, okay, let me put it this way. If yes. there is romance in the book, it is the worst kind of romance. But read the book and you'll understand what I'm talking about. I see. Uh, so, Muppet Caper, great Muppet Caper. Uh, I really, one of the reasons I enjoy Charles Grodin so much in this film, yeah, as uh, Nikki Holiday, one of the cohorts in the big scheme in the film, is he comes off, you know, Charles Grodin, he doesn't really act in movies anymore. He used to be a, a news correspondent on one of the cable news channels. And I'm not being vague for political reasons. I just don't remember what cable news channel he was on. Uh, and I, I've read some of his memoirs, and they're very, very interesting. He's a oh, very, yeah. very smart, uh, talented individual. And in this, uh, seeing the actors work with the Muppets and extended scenes, well, how do they do the performance? Charles Grodin has to try and be flirty with Miss Piggy. He has to try and seem shifty, like a dishonest character that's kind of a rube. And and he can pull it off while not coming off as too cartoony. It's a real fine line when you're acting with Muppets. Especially in these older films before the Muppet films have become an established franchise. Well, the, the Muppets were an established franchise in and of, their, in, in and of themselves at this point. Uh, but it, as, as a feature film franchise, they were not... The, well, yes, okay. the TV show and all that stuff in pop culture, they've been around. 
But, but what are you trying to say, Thrasher? No, no, you brought up a, you brought up a good point. It kind of shot mine down. I'm sorry. What was that? Uh, so you brought up a good point, which kind of shot mine down. Which was what? I'm sorry, I was talking to my wife for a second. That, uh, that and while the Muppets are a franchise, Muppet films weren't a franchise in 1981. Right. I mean, although, I mean, people still knew what the Muppets was, but as far as actors in semi-serious dramatic stories trying to, you know, do you underplay with the Muppets? Do you overact with the Muppets in an overarching story, which you didn't have in the Muppet TV, on the Muppet show episodes? is something a bit different, and Charles Grodin really puts a good uh, foot down to, to show people how to do it. I think he's tremendously entertaining. It makes me miss him. Uh, I, I, I can't think of a movie he's been in recently, and it's not that I've been following his career I, either. Well, I think with, with the Muppets, what they've always done so well is that the parts played by humans are played completely straight. Right. That, that really helps with the comedy and the reality. I mean, according to, uh, um, you know, Wikipedia, which isn't the best source, the last main feature film Charles Grodin was in was 2007's The X, uh, independent comedy starring Zach Braff and Amanda Peet and Jason Bateman from five years ago that I've never even heard of. Um, so maybe he's, you know, just kind of doing what Martin Lawrence did and, and after doing a lot of big movies, just kind of living the high life. <laughs> Like, I have no idea. And and I'm not blaming them for that. Like, more power to them. And yeah, Charles Grodin had his own political-oriented talk show, The Charles Grodin Show on CNBC in uh, in 2000, uh, around from 95 to 2000, thereabouts. So, Well, Matt, I ask you this. Yes. Who's more inaccurate, Wikipedia or the person who quotes Wikipedia? Who is more foolish, the fool or the fool who follows him? Don't try to turn this around on me. Answer the question. You're on trial here. The person that quotes Wikipedia... I've contributed some stuff to some Wikipedia entries, but no, I I admit, it's not the best source, but it's fine for getting some basic things down. IMDB, Internet Movie Database, isn't the best source either, if you're going to be frank about it. And if there's one thing I'm good about, it's about being overly defensive and touchy when questioned. <laughs> is that fair? Um, well, kind of the way Miss Piggy is touchy when Kermit's asking her where she lives and improvises an address. Yeah. The, yes, uh, you know, some highbrow street somewhere? Yes, highbrow street! Uh, 17 highbrow street! You're exactly right. And it... <laughs> It's something, on the one hand, you know, well, they're supposed to be in love, but they're playing characters in a movie that, in the last movie, was about them getting a movie deal to begin with, presumably for this movie or the Muppet movie. It's all a bit confusing if you think about <laughs> it, it too both. much. And, and yet, seeing the, the romantic hijinks, the physical comedy of Miss Piggy trying to convince, oh, I own this house, and then hiding in a closet, or, or whatever happens in the film, uh, is... It is really amusing, and um, well, it's all farce, and we don't we don't get nearly enough farce in movies these days. No, and it also you know in the Great Muppet Caper compared to the other Muppet films, farce is something the other Muppet films don't do quite as much of. It's almost like the Great Muppet Caper is trying to aim for a more, you know, if, if not sophisticated, more of an older crowd than than the Muppet movie, uh, as far as the plot and storytelling and references go. And if you don't know that going in, you're going to be a bit lost, uh, as am I. I sadly don't have a lot of experience watching things like The Thin Man, like you, Thrasher. So I, maybe uh, the jokes aren't as funny as to me because I don't get them because I don't have as much as, as much of a background. Possibly, although admittedly, like I loved this film even when I was a kid before mm. I had really become film literate. So part of it may just be a willingness to let the film wash over you. Right, I might have a harder time because I've gone into this as a you know a high school student when I watched it the first time. I didn't watch it as a kid, and that certainly affects your um, view looking on something. So, um, with the Muppet Caper, looking at the songs, I'm trying to think of one that steps out to me. 
Happiness Hotel is a really catchy ditty that has a lot of Muppets doing a lot of different parts. Oh, If yeah. I'm thinking of a standard kind of Muppet musical number, Happiness Hotel from this picture would be it. And it's, yeah. it's just a lush set that they're running around and making a lot of mayhem in. And also right. just like, just... You know, just some, some just some great lyrics. If you don't mind friendly animals and can learn to stand the smell, you'll fit right in at Happiness <laughs> Hotel. I love that it's a happy song about a terrible place to live. I've lived in some of those places, and you you need to stay positive when you're in those situations. I visited some of those places. In fact, I, I accidentally uh, this is God. This was like six or seven years ago, but I drove up with a girlfriend at the time to visit you at one of those rougher places you lived in, in Savannah, Georgia, and had a knife drawn on me, because I parked in the backyard instead of the front. Who drew the knife on you? I thought he had a knife on him. Okay, I'm exaggerating. Exaggerating in the sense that nothing happened? (laughs) Yes, I was hustled and felt panicked, and my girlfriend at the time was on pain medication and was woozy and could barely speak. Ah... Anyway, um, that's how I react to things. Muppet Caper has Muppets in England. Indeed. (laughs) Um, Again, like we've said in the last episode about the Muppet movie, when a movie is good for the most part, it's harder to talk about, and that's a weird paradox, because paradox, not paradax. I don't think paradox is anything. Uh, Paradox? Where are they? I stained my Paradax last week and I haven't taken him to the cleaners. That accent is horrendous and doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> it's supposed to imitate anything, I suppose. It's just an all-purpose all accent, you know. I'm from Britain, I am, I am. Consider yourself at home. I'm going to clean the chimney sweep before dancing with a few penguins in a cartoon eyes eyes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's the one musical number this movie doesn't have. It doesn't have a musical number about, hey, look at this weird country we're in. And that's surprising. Even though it's set in London, you don't have that much in it. I mean, they do some sightseeing, but... Welcome to Casual Magic, the show where we explore the fun side of Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual format to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering. Come along and play! Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Well, I kind of like that, because it's kind of like the only reason the movie's in London is because that's where they filmed it. Like, you, you you could set this in any major metropolitan area. Well, and other than that, a lot of Muppet stuff was filmed in studios in London, uh, whether it be for economic reasons or whatever. Uh, things like Labyrinth and The Dark Crystal, which are not sequels, but I think by themselves would make an interesting sequel cast special episode for the mm, future. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're kind of an unintentional duology of the Jim Henson doing something weird that's not directly uh, uh, Muppet-related with Kermit and all the gain. Those were filmed in London, too, and then... I, yeah, I have no idea why the, and James Bond, you know, stuff obviously is in London in those studios. Well, that's also where the Jim Henson Creature Shop was located. Well, that would explain it. Okay. And it's interesting over the years, you look back at things like Sesame Street, how they'd have different versions of Sesame Street for different countries. I don't know if England has it differently, but like France or Israel has their uh, Yiddish, or no, it's not Hebrew, I'm sorry, version of uh, Sesame Street. And there's all different versions all around the world. And that even though Jim Henson died in, what was it, 90, 91? Uh, I think it was 91. I'm not going to look that up because we'll talk about that in the Muppets Take Manhattan episode. That's too sad to talk about right now. Because um, I remember when I found that out. Oh, uh, yes. Bring something else up, Thrasher. I'm getting sad. Talking well, you about were talking Jim about, Henson, the, you were talking about the, the, the stuff in Britain. Okay. The legacy of Jim Henson over the years has been fascinating how it's lasted in spite of itself. And, um, you know, with the great Muppet caper, even though... The Muppet movies didn't happen for a while after Muppets from Space. And Muppet Caper, the Muppets were still current. The Muppet Show just finished, uh, you know, shortly before in the fifth season, before the Muppet Caper started. And it was still in vogue at the time. And I wonder if at the time of Muppet Caper, do you think there were people taking where 
uh, people as kids grew up watching Sesame Street, and then they had kids, and they took their kids to watching Great Muppet Caper. You think I it might have been a generational thing at this point in I don't think it was generational yet. Okay, right. uh, I don't really think that would happen. I don't think that would happen until later, frankly. Yeah. Um, along those lines, when we get to the episode talking about the 2011 Muppets movie, uh, I thought uh, observing the audience and that was fascinating at the theater I went to. Um, but Great Muppet Caper. Uh, so it's a caper. The caper doesn't take up a lot of the film. Thank goodness. I, I mean, do you think it even needed to be there? Could this have just been called Muppets uh, Muppets Drink Tea in London? No, well, because no, you, you need <laughs> to have some sort of pretense of, of a conflict. You right. can't just have the romantic farce between Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog. So, like... Because the thing is, plenty of movies of this era would lazily throw in a diamond heist or diamond smuggling just to have some kind of semblance of a plot. But in this film, includes the diamond heist to to satirize the the throwaway diamond heist uh, plot convention. And so, but it needs to pay off. You need to have a you you know Miss Piggy who's been framed needs to be cleared. You need to have some sort of confrontation between our protagonists and the antagonists. The antagonists being Charles Grodin and three angry fashion models. Right, and uh, I almost wish the the character of Nikki Holiday, played by Charles Grodin, would have been in the film more. And it's the same kind of thing that bothered me about the Muppet movie, where he had um. What is it? Oh shit! Doc uh, Hopper, frog leg, Doc Hopper. I was thinking Doc Holiday, but no, that's Doc not the case. Doc Holiday, played by Val Kilmer. No, Doc Hopper. And that I realize in the end of the day, the Muppet films are not about plot, and that they try to start one and do it as a spoof and kind of half-assed. As a viewer, it kind of throws me off. It's not an, if it's not an ongoing story all the way through, but they kind of make it like it sort of counts. I'm sort of pulled from one edge to the other. Well, what's happening? What storyline should I pay attention to? And um, with the Muppet films, especially these older ones that are more episodic, at the end of the day, you just have to kind of let it wash over you, as you put Thrasher, mm, yeah. and, and just sit back and enjoy the show. Which is really what the Muppets have, have always been about. I think one of the reasons I love the Muppets so much and why they're so infectious and why you can do so many things with the Muppets is because the whole philosophy behind everything they do really boils down to, come on, gang, let's put on a show! Just that, that compulsion to entertain people. That's exactly it. In fact, that's even the plot of uh, two out of the three of the original Muppet trilogy. Muppet movie, Great Muppet Caper, Muppet Takes Manhattan. Right, the, fir- the first and the third are about, let's put on a show, it's that naivete, it's that, you know, whatever happens, happens, let's go. And, you know, I don't know if this was ever intentional, but watching these uh, older Muppet movies in particular, the episodic nature, the kind of self-conscious corniness of the jokes, reminds me of a kid as when I would read Mad Magazine. In that you had stuff that was satirizing stuff in pop culture, and even though it was based off a plot of a movie or a comic book or what have you, that wasn't so important. You just had to go from one joke to the next. To further upon that theory, uh, you know, a, a recent cartoon show, Family Guy, which is something I happen to enjoy. But I don't. Fair enough. I was reading a review on uh, the Onion AV Club at uh, avclub.com, which is an excellent, excellent site of movie criticism that is not fake movie, fake you know stuff like the Onion.com. In it, they had a theory of Family Guy in that the jokes, instead of having the structure of a sitcom, the jokes had a structure of a comic strip. Each scene was individual on and two of itself with set-up punchline gag in a rapid succession. And I thought about that, and wow, that really applies to Family Guy, and in some sense, I don't mean this as a diss, it applies to the Muppets as well, in that each scene is its own sketch, if you want to use SNL terms, its own bit. And it moves on to the next thing, and it has that vaudeville influence because it's totally random. Oh, this time we're making fun of a romantic comedy. This time we're making fun of a show tune. This time we're making fun of a Bubsley Berkeley 1940s black-and-white 10-minute musical number in a chandelier dance hall. You follow? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Or? It, 
It does. I, I wouldn't say that everything is so self-contained to be structured like a comic strip, but almost everything is some sort. Almost everything is some sort of set piece. Hmm. Right. Um, so, what do you think about some of the the bigger Muppet shots in the film? The whole dance sequence to begin with. That's a cameo from director John he- Jim Henson himself. John Henson. Jesus, I'm stupid. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> no, no, the no. I, lo- I the, the Miss Piggy Busby Berkeley musical number is great, and like I love, I love that water gets involved. I love that reverse shot where Miss Piggy comes rising out of the water, holding lit sparklers. Just <laughs> like, one of those amazingly artificial shots, just like you would have gotten in a Busby Berkeley number. And the dance scene takes its time. It's a long ass scene. And, and, also, and you look, it just, it's so clearly, that scene was so clearly put in the movie for the sake of Miss Piggy's ego. Cause the, cause the song is just <laughs> nothing but praise for Miss Piggy. Yeah. And it's, um, it'll be interesting when we talk about the 2011 Muppet film and that, you know, you get a, Miss Piggy gets her number, but it's trying to do something else entirely. But Miss Piggy, if nothing else is a vain, uh, character. Oh yes. And uh, reportedly, talking to a friend of ours on Twitter, Beth uh, Gilmer, she was saying in a, a recent documentary on Netflix, which I've seen, which is excellent, called Being Elmo, A Puppeteer's Journey, uh, Frank Oz is giving advice to Kevin Clash, the, the voice and performer of Elmo, and he's saying, when I came up with Mess Piggy, it was based on the voice of a transvestite trucker I ran into at a gas station. <laughs> Makes a kind of sense. Kind of, right. But, I mean, it's that you take something from real life and just sort of expand upon it. And, that, I mean, that, that there was a Miss Piggy exercise album, a fashion calendar in the 80s. Miss Piggy was a feminist icon of sorts. Uh, not to mention, you know, that it, even though she's a Muppet pig, in a way she was representing a heavier set of women, right? Is that fair to say? I, I really don't know, but that's only because I, I tend to not see puppets or animated characters that way. Hmm. But I guess it could be possible. I, 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 no, I have a story for the Muppets 2011 film that... that I'll, I'll just tease a bit of it here. <laughs> no, that's not six episodes down, but it, it's a great movie. Tease us, Matt. So tease us. I'm going to tease you as Harvey Fias thing. Okay. So I saw this movie in the theater, and, and Miss Piggy has a scene in the Muppets 2011 film where she says, uh, she says why she broke up with Kermit. She needed to be your own women. And uh, two, two, uh, two women stood up in the theater and say, you go, girl, with no irony. Two grown women. Did you tease the story, or did you just tell us the whole story? I just told the story out of context, so it flops <laughs> on two accounts. Okay. Great Muppet Caper, what is another takeaway you have from the film? This is not one of my favorites, Thrasher. So, uh, uh, it, it, it is one of mine. Uh, I love, well, I, I, I love the, the lengths they're willing to go to for, for a gag. Like, I love the, 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 the joke where they're, 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 their tickets to London are so cheap that not only do they have to fly freight, but they don't even get to land. The crates that they're in are just thrown off the plane. <laughs> And they pay that off at the end of the film, too. Oh, yeah, the end of the film is a reprise of the Hey, a Movie song, but it's all all of the Muppets parachuting through the sky, and you get to mm. see all of them. It's really great. And that's a real uh, shot that's a technical tour de force. They're kind of showing off, hey, you know, in the first Muppet movies, we had everyone sitting in the theater. We're going to have them all parachuting. And in a way, it reminds you of like a sequence from a James Bond film where James Bond is parachuting and beating someone up and is trying to be a fancy parachute sequence except it's with Muppets so it's obviously more ridiculous or not <laughs> no no it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm sort of I'm, I'm now lost in the, the magic of that scene now <laughs> but oh actually what do you think because you know we talk about a lot of things that are a set piece so of course at the end Groden and his supermodel goons are uh, breaking into the Mallory Gallery to steal the the legendary baseball diamond, which I did not even get. I did not even get that joke until I think I was ten years old, and it suddenly occurred to me that I just got that joke, and you repeated it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ashamed to say, but well, for, go on. For anyone listening who doesn't get it, uh, in America, where where the baseball is played, 
the, the field is often referred to as a diamond because of the shape of the plates as they're laid out. And, uh, but yeah, and, and they really hit that really hard, too, because not only is the baseball diamond the size of a baseball, which is where I, when I was young, I thought it came from, but the cushion it's resting on is reminiscent of a baseball glove, and the display mm. case it's in has a baseball diamond etched into it. <laughs> I mean, that's a joke that, you talk about a joke that works in several levels. I'll have to rewatch it, pay more attention next time I watch this film. Uh, it's really interesting. But what do, I, you, what do you think about when they play a, a game of baseball with the baseball diamond to keep the, uh, the thieves at bay? It, it's silly. It reminds me of, uh, although I think this happened after this film, the, um, Dino De Laurentiis produced uh, a film, Flash Gordon. Savior of the universe. Just a man with a man's courage. I can't seem like Freddie Mercury. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, we learned that when we did Highlander. Absolutely. Um, it reminded me of the scene of Flash Gordon where he has, I, I, forget, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but he has something he has to keep away from the bad guys. And because the character on Earth is an American football player, he tosses it like a football to uh, to his cronies, to the scientists and stuff, to keep it away from the bad guys, and it, it's kind of absurd. But you want to get that kind of slapstick, nineteen thirties, uh, hell's a popping craziness. I mean, if you want to see something similar, you either look at the opening scene with the the vial with the cure uh, to the poison from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is, we've covered Temple of Doom, D O O M. Uh, that we've covered on the sequel cast, sequelcast.com, or you look at Steven Spielberg has a scene sim- very similar uh, in a dance hall in 1941, his ill-fated comedy starring Jim Belushi. John Belushi. God damn it. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying here? It, it's meant to be chaotic and silly yeah. and slapstick as an homage to older films. And it's silly, yes, but it's the Muppets. The Muppets are supposed to be a bit silly. Even if the the human, even if the cameos and all, all the human actors playing humans, not Muppets, try to play things straight. I mean, well, all the stuff with Charles Grodin and the the models reminds me a little bit tonally of the Adam West Batman TV show. Uh, I can kind of see that the the the, the ma- villainous mastermind with with three mostly silent disposable henchmen who wear identical black leotards. Right. It's not. It's not quite as self-consciously camp as that Adam West TV show, uh, which I wish would come on DVD, which it hasn't because of rights issues. Yeah. Urgh. Okay. Go on. I'm, I'm lost in that moment. Oh no, no, I, I, ha- I have some Adam West Batman rage too. I really want those DVDs. Those are, it, it is a crime that 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 is not available. Uh, but um. I I really one thing that really stands out is when Miss when Miss Piggy breaks out of prison, which is a great prison prison stuff, and she you know she she steals the truck with the motorcycle in it. I love that because you know we talked we've talked about that when we did Smoking and the Bandit how big CB radio and trucker talk was. Yeah, I love that she immediately gets on the ham radio and immediately <laughs> has a trucker handle. Of uh, I believe she calls herself the Ham Hawk and like <laughs> builds this yeah. relationship yeah. with all these truckers. It's great. Right, uh, you're absolutely right. I think it's a clever touch. It's something that was current in pop culture at the time, too. And yet, even you have current, some sort of pop culture gags from the time and cameos with actors like Peter Peter Ustinov or Peter Falk, in particular, that would have been more popular at the time. It doesn't have so many uh, jokes about pop culture in the late, in the early 80s, late 70s when this was released, that you feel lost as a modern viewer. You know, there can be a tendency to overdo it if a film is nothing but references to other films, if you haven't felt those films, you can kind of feel like, well, what's the joke here? Yeah, yeah, that that's one. That's it is so refreshing to see a comedy that doesn't rely on a lot of uh, pop culture references. And by focusing on references that are more macro, as far as you know, oh, nineteen thirties newspaper comedies, than micro, as in, oh, this specific film and this specific line. In nature, it can hold up much better over time. Boy, I've got a boffle picture premise for you. A 1930s newspaper comedy. Stop the presses. It's called The Godfather, 
And see, everyone is the father of God, so no one can tell who the real father is. This, this, uh, I don't know if the students want to do a movie about a weird metaphysical philosophy. But then again... This is why I, uh, I can't do comedy. I'm often booed off stage. But not off karaoke stages. But you okay. have some gusto with karaoke. Um, yes, I am fearless in a way I shouldn't be. Great Muppet Caper, that's what we're fucking talking about. We need to wrap this up. Uh, it is, because it's very late for you, Thresher, and it's, I gotta have dinner and stuff. And my end. Uh, take away from Great Muppet Caper, uh, I'll start. I, I feel overall this is a mediocre Muppet film. It has some funny moments. I think the more I watch it, it might grow on me. I feel like I need to really brush up on my Thin Man films, my Bubsley Berkeley uh, musical numbers from uh, old-fashioned musicals to get more out of this film. I think that the kind of humor it's going for is more sophisticated and more specific than in the Muppet movie. There's less celebrity cameos. It's a difficult film to love, but uh, when you love it, you're never going to let it go. Thrasher? Yeah, I guess... Uh, I guess what, I, what I've got to say is that this, this is this is still a, a great movie. I still really, really, uh, I still really, really love it. It has a lot to offer. But yeah, it, you either have to be willing to get lost in the movie, or you have to, as it was very easy to do as a child or as an adult, provided you understand the the cinematic uh, vocabulary the movie is uh, working with. I think it just it's just a brilliant joke delivery system. Just mm, and you know, right. if you don't like one joke, don't worry about a second and a half later, a new joke's going to be coming your way. You're going to find something that you like. Great point. You know, it's like Mel Brooks said about his jokes: if you throw enough stuff at the wall, someone's bound to laugh at one of them. And I don't mean that as an insult to Mel Brooks, uh, but it's just something he said, paraphrased. Okay, so we're going to start one of our three closing sequel cast segments, this first one called Sequel Cast Theater, in which uh, I uh, perform a scene from this film, Great Muppet Caper, all the way through, doing all the different characters, and then Thrasher performs it, and then you, the listener, if you go to facebook.com slash sequelcast and look at the topic about this, get to decide who did better, and we'll talk about it in the next episode. So I'll start, this is a reenactment, uh, all played by me, Matt, of a, a, a scene from the opening credits. Hey-ho, Kermit the Frog. Sorry, I'm trying to get the voice. Pretty nice up here, isn't it? Kermit, what if we drift out to sea? What if we're never heard from again? What if there is a storm or we get struck by lightning? That'd be neat. Listen, nothing's gonna happen. These were just the opening credits. Oh, where are they? Wow, the Great Muppet Caper. Nice title. <laughs> Again, metaphysical. The or, or, or meta. The characters are commenting on their own opening credit sequence, one and of the, the best fact scenes... that plot can't happen during the opening credits. One of the best scenes of the film. Thrasher. All right. Pretty nice up here, isn't it, Kermit? What if we drift out to sea? What if we never heard from again? What if there's a storm or we get struck by lightning? That'd be neat. Listen, nothing's gonna happen. These are just the opening credits. Oh, where are they? Title card appears. Wow. The Great Muppet Caper. Nice title. So if you want to decide whether me, Mad Earth Thrasher, was better, hint it's me. Uh, go to Facebook.com slash SequelCast and vote on there, on the uh, subject posted on there. That was said very simply, I'm sure. Okay. So now we're going to move on to pitch a sequel in which we pretend there was never any sequels made to Great Muppet Caper. What if this was the last film released? So if Thrasher or myself was to pitch a sequel to Great Muppet Caper, pretending the sequel has never existed, what would it be? I'll begin. I, I think, you know, after this one, the first one was kind of a road uh, homage. This one was a, an homage to 1930s kind of newspaper uh, comedy mysteries. I think you would tackle an entirely different genre and I would simply call it Muppet Transylvania. You would take <laughs> you would take Muppet films combined with Universal Studios, 1930s horror films. I'm talking The Mummy, Dracula with Bela Lugosi, uh, Frankenstein with uh, Boris Karloff. And you'd have cameos from those actors because some of them would have been alive at, at, at the time in the early 80s, considering all that. 
and uh, it would be an homage to those. It would be filmed in, in black and white. It would uh, kind of be, you know, like Jan Frankenstein meets the Muppets with the musical numbers, which is ironic because Jan Frankenstein later became a Broadway musical. And uh, that, that's my pitch for what I do, Muppet Transylvania. Uh, what's your pitch a sequel for Great Muppet Caper pretending the following sequels never existed? Thrasher? Well, I, I, do, uh, I do the Great Muppet Cooler. Where uh, what? where Charles Grodin's character wants revenge on the Muppets for them busting <laughs> up his jewel heist, he manages through a a crooked lawyer played by what the hell Dom DeLuise. Uh, he's able hmm. to get the Muppets all framed for a crime they didn't commit, so they're all put in prison, and it's him trying to get revenge on them in prison. There's lots of prison stick, but in the end, you know everybody, you know the 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 truth will out. The Muppets are the Muppets are freed. The conspirators behind their their unlawful imprisonment are exposed, and we all have good good laughs. So you're saying you want a movie where Charles Grodin sticks his penis in all the Muppets Muppet holes? Fuck no! <laughs> it's not that kind of prison movie. It's not, okay, it's not Shawshank gotcha. Redemption with Muppets. <laughs> not that you couldn't have Shawshank Redemption references, although they did do that in Muppets and Sp- Muppets from Space. <laughs> <laughs> and then I then I escaped from that prison, and I realized I can't do a Morgan Freeman impression. That'd be great, a Morgan Freeman M- Muppet Freeman. I remember the first day Kermit the Frog came to Shawshank Prison. Have you seen the Morgan Freeman joke uh, online? It's a meme. It, it's from probably a year ago or so, called Titty Sprinkles. <laughs> no. Okay, I'm going to look it up and post the text so you're going to read it in your Morgan Freeman impression. Okay. So speak about something for the next uh, seconds while I look it up. Talk about Morgan Freeman. Why is he so great? Well, I guess while uh, while Matt is uh, doing that, I shall attempt to entertain you in my own inimitable fashion. How will I do that? Well, you'll just have to keep listening to my dulcet tones to find out. That's right. Keep listening. Be lulled into a false sense of security. Send me your money. Found it? Um, hold on. Yeah, give me a second. I'm still typing. Keep on talking. <laughs> okay. We are a high-tech operation. We can't copy, we can't paste. We just gotta type into a into a keypad. You know, it occurred to me, we could just edit the dead air out. I don't know why you have me embarrassing myself. Because it's funny, you keep on going, the listeners like it. Okay. I have a donkey, and his name is Clyde. Uh, when I'm bored on Tuesdays, we go out for a ride. I hope we don't get sued by Hat Trick Productions. What is Hat Trick Productions? A Hat Trick Productions was the uh, studio behind Whose Line Is It Anyway? I think we just violated three of their copyrights. Okay, so I just, uh, kind of like I do in my day job, I type this monologue. This is an internet meme. Thrasher is going to read it in his Morgan right. Freeman impersonation. Okay, okay. The most satisfying thing about this image is the fact that you are probably reading this in Morgan Freeman's voice. It's amazing, this phenomenon. Just by simply seeing a picture of someone, your brain instantly makes the connection to the most memorable thing about them. There could be anything in this world written on this image, and in your brain, it would sound amazing because you have Morgan Freeman narrating it. Titty Sprinkles. And that has become a worldwide phenomenon. It's a, it's, it's that text juxtaposed against a picture of Morgan Freeman. Well, you can really do that with anybody, you know, Patrick Stewart. You know, the most satisfying thing about this image is the fact that you are probably reading it in Patrick Stewart's voice. Right. You could do it with Alan Rick. You could do it with Alan Rickman as well. You could say the most that could be that could be anything in the world written on this image, and in your brain, it would sound amazing because you have. Alan Rickman narrating it. Titty Sprinkles. Or T. <laughs> <laughs> or T.J. Miller reading it. The most satisfying Denver! Yeah! What would, uh... Oh, what's his name? God, I'm so retarded. Paul uh, Williams? Kermit the Frog? Rip Taylor? Is that his name? Shit. Rip Taylor. No. The most satisfying... <laughs> 
<laughs> the most satisfying thing about this image is the fact that you're probably reading it in Morgan Freeman's book. Morgan Freeman, no, never. Who's Morgan Freeman? Never mind. It's amazing, this phenomenon. Just by simply seeing <laughs> a picture of someone, your brain instantly makes the connection to the most memorable thing about them. What's the most memorable thing about me? Oh, heaven forbid you should know. There could be anything in the world written in this image. Oh, and uh, your brain would sound amazing because you have... Who the hell am I? Rip Taylor. Rip Taylor, that's who I am. Nobody knows. Never mind. Narrating it. Titty sprinkles. <laughs> I've seen my fair share of titty sprinkles, I can tell you. Oh, look, I've got titty sprinkles in the bucket. Oh. Very good. Okay, now that we've ran that bit into the ground, it's time to... Uh... <laughs> close things out on the sequel cast with what you're watching a segment in which we talk about a piece of media whether it be film video game what have you that we've experienced in the past week uh as for myself i've been watching the latest season of uh, true blood uh, season five on hbo it's not something i my wife and i uh, subscribe to year-round but we just do it around the time when game of thrones and true blood comes out just to catch up with it just to catch up on it so we don't get spoiled and because we like those shows um true blood has kind of grown on me i'm still not crazy about the show my wife loves the show and has read all gazillion books um as for myself you know the show i think has gotten more campy as it's gotten on and uh, the thing I liked about, uh, these are very mild spoilers, but when, have you ever seen the show, Thrasher? Yes, yes, I have. Okay. Um, so, I, have you seen that much of it? Uh, no, I saw, I, I saw chunks of the first, second, and third season, but I don't think All I've right. ever seen a complete season. Okay, so I'm going to be very vague. Um, but, so when don't, the show don't starts... Don't about spoiling it for me. I... Okay. Uh, mild spoilers for True Blood Ahoy, although we had spoilers all throughout the sequel cast, so I shouldn't need to say that. Uh, when the show starts, there's a few characters that are, you know, so I, shall I say supernatural, and that makes them special and unique, and they have to hide their powers. As it goes on, more and more characters become a different kind of supernatural, whether it be vampire, werewolf, um, fairy, whatever it is. Because of that, I think it becomes less less interesting. If everyone is a monster, it's not so special that you're a monster. Uh, that's my big sort of issue with the show. I think I think it's shot well. I think it's kind of funny. You have some very funny satire with uh, the Christian summer camps, and I think season two in particular. Um, but th- that, that's my thoughts about that show. Thrasher, what have you thought about what you've seen of True Blood so far? Well, what I've, what I've seen, I've enjoyed. It's it's a it's a series that I bet I would enjoy watching all the way through. But it's the, it's the kind of series where I'd get the DVD and I'd watch the whole thing over a weekend. Right. The uh, and uh, from what my uh, wife has told me, the books are very, very, very different after the first few seasons. Um, so, what is something you've been watching, Thrasher? Well, I have not been watching much, but I've been doing a heck of a lot of reading. And what I've been reading net recently is the history of witchcraft and demonology by Montague Summers. Uh, Montague Summers was a Catholic priest. Uh, he firmly believed in, in witchcraft in the medieval sense and in Satanism, and this was a scholarly text he wrote about, about the history of, of those phenomena. And uh, the main reason I picked it up is that H.P. Lovecraft, the horror author, makes reference uh, to this uh, book in his writings, and he also had a copy. And I gotta say, this book is fascinating. Uh, I do want to make it clear, I don't share Montague Summers' uh, spiritual or occult beliefs, but, I mean, this this is a book written by a true believer, and yet a true believer with a very scholarly background. He doesn't just make up paranoid ramblings about witch cults and demons. Everything has a cited source, whether it comes from scripture or from uh, from transcripts of actual historical witch trials or from other historical texts. It's... It's really an amazing read. It's a fascinating look into the in, into that kind of mindset. So was this published like in the 20s, 1920s? Uh, it was published, let me double check. I believe it was published in 1928, but let hmm. me uh, let me look that up right now. It uh I'll say it was published in 1925. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, even though 1925 is such a long, almost 100 years ago, uh, still the writing style, uh, especially in nonfiction works, I think 
holds up pretty well and that it's fairly easy to understand. It's not like you're trying to read Shakespeare or something. Um, it reminds me of years ago I got a book from a used bookstore. Uh, science fiction author H.G. Wells wrote a very well-regarded, uh, like two, two or three volume set about the history of the world. And the thoughts in that, uh, by today's standards, appear uh, come off as racist and all these things, but I think it's because they didn't know very much at the time about other cultures. And uh, it's a really interesting thing to read. So I, I'm... Uh, would you... Uh, from... Uh, do you know that much about witchcraft uh, um, thoughts in current times? Or does the stuff in the book come off as inaccurate or naive or because of well, the age? Well, I mean, I, I know, I know, I, I know plenty of people who describe themselves as Wiccans, pagans, uh, druids, chaos magicians, and, and and things like that. The, the main thing, I, I guess, the the main thing that that kind of st- stands out in in the book, you know, that, that it was written by a priest. He does believe that the devil exists, and he does believe that the devil is a real spiritual force in the cosmos. But one of the things that the the book continues to to harken back on is that the devil doesn't have much power and most and and most things you hear related to witchcraft are just frauds. If if somebody says they've been to a sabbat and they've met the devil, they're mistaken it wasn't really the devil, it was just some some high-ranking cultist impersonating the devil. That that's a theme that he keeps or an idea that he keeps going harkening uh, back on throughout the book. And it, hmm. and it's 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 a it's I don't know it's a, it's a fascinating angle. You you don't usually see that when somebody makes a movie about a cult. If it's always actually the devil or some demon that shows up, it's never someone in disguise. Right. Well, I think that's a good uh, point to wrap things up on. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the sequel cast with us presumably talking about the Great Muppet Caper. Tune in next week to hear us talk about the Muppets Take Manhattan. We'll be talking about the live-action Muppet theatrical films over the next several weeks. For the se- you can check us out, of course, at SequelCast.com or go to Facebook.com slash SequelCast. And if you go on iTunes, look up SequelCast, be sure to leave us a review. So for the sequel cast, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Saying... It's a sequel cast, and we can't believe they did it, starring Matt and Thrasher and me. And hello to the Happiness Hotel. Okay. So if you don't find friendly animals and can learn to stand the smell, well, welcome home to the Happiness Hotel. You know, I may be mistaken, but the bellhops look like rats. You should see the chambermaids.